Hello, everybody. Hey, I'm Matt. I'm Zach. And this is MC Car Guys Podcast. Welcome. Absolutely. Find us on social medias at MC Car Guys. And you can find us on anchor.fm forward slash MZ Car Guys. And you can contact us via email. Matt, what's the MZ Car Guys at gmail.com? Dear heavens, it's like we have everything all sorts of put together. It's a lie. Like it's a lie. <laughs> um, so we're continuing the, uh, the theme of Americans this week uh, with uh, Dodge, the Dodge Brothers. Absolutely. Um, so. Dodge is, it's, it's amazing to me how when you start looking at, especially the, uh, the American automotive manufacturers in the early years, um, everybody kind of knew everybody. Um, and I, I guess I'll just go ahead and jump into it. Is that okay, Matt, for the, uh, so in, in the, in the turn of the century, the big dog was, of course, Buick. And then Buick was, uh, bless you. Uh, Buick- I, thought you I, I, I thought, sorry, I thought you were going to say Ford. I didn't realize Buick was the big dog at the turn of the century car makers. At the very turn of the century. Uh, Ford didn't jump into it till probably around 04, 05. Okay, good to know. Um, so, yeah, th- things changed very rapidly in in the in the automotive industry like buick was in the late 1800s uh Oldsmobile was probably close-ish to around that time anyways also um but the dodge brothers were the big producer of uh of equipment uh you had horace dodge and john dodge uh horace was the uh was kind of the uh the the mechanical genius uh the the engineer of of the brothers um, uh, he was the younger brother. And then you had John who was the real kind of like salesman, uh, manager type. Um, and he was the older brother. They were about four years, about three and a half years apart. Um, and the, the, the really awesome story about the Dodge brothers is that they were so close. They were, they, you, you can draw almost direct parallels between their early life um, within, within their early life between like them and Orville and Wilbur Wright. Uh, very, very similar dynamics um, as far as that goes. Um, and in, in, you know, um, their, their dad owned a, a foundry. Uh, they quickly went out on their own. Uh, formed a company uh, where, shock and a surprise, what did they build, My, uh, Matt? Whatever your name is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to guess bicycles. There you go. Another theme that keeps repeating itself at the turn of the century is almost everybody who did anything mechanical, well, they were into bikes, <laughs> bicycles. Um. So anyways, uh, they started that, uh, they had that for a couple of years and then they sold it, uh, and then moved over into, uh, Michigan where all of the, you know, big automotive things were happening and stuff. And, uh, in 1902, I believe they, uh, were making a bunch of transmissions for, uh, Oldsmobile, 
uh, for Ransom Olds. And then the very next year in 1903, they were given an opportunity that was just too, just too good to pass up. And that was, uh, they got with, uh, that was when Henry Ford, uh, after he had left the comp- after he had left the Henry Ford company, which would become Cadillac to form the Ford Motor Company, um, he needed a lot of financial backing. So he got with a bunch of uh, different people and stuff. And then as instead of ha- instead of giving payments uh, because he didn't have money, uh, he was also a very good salesman himself. Uh, but also it, it's very apparent that, that the Dodge brothers were very keen businessmen, that they knew they knew what could happen and what was going to happen uh, and, and, and had a good eye for it. And, and one of the first indicators of this is connecting directly with Ford, with, with the Ford Motor Company. And they were able to, um, John, uh, John Dodge was the vice president of Ford Motor Company for several years. Uh, and, and Horace worked right along with it, but they, they secured the rights to produce the, uh, the engine exclusively for the Ford Model T. So when the Model T came out in 1908, um, and, and by 1910, um, they had made enough money that they said, you know, we want to... We, we, we want to go off on our own. Now, they still had uh, shares. They, they, they were still stockholders in the Ford Motor Company. So not only did they have this business that they had just started up, the Dodge Brothers, they also had shares in Ford Motor Company, which was absolutely going like gangbusters. The second thing that shows that they had an absolute uncanny knack for understanding where things were going. Now, mind you, this is the turn of the century. The United States is, you know, we, we, they don't want anything to do with what's going on over in Europe. We're very much an isolationist country. But the Dodge brothers know that whatever happens in Europe, America has an interest in. It, 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 it's, it's, it, it's two sides of the same coin. They, they just know it. So they know that there's going to be this wartime buildup. So another thing that's happening around... Um, you know, so, so, they, so they start kind of building up, you know, all this stuff. And during the early 1910s, so from like 1910-ish, that type of thing, um, there's, there's probably the best, the, the, probably the most influential person 
and 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 this is going to sound a little bit weird so but probably the most influential person to catapult the dodge brothers into success uh is one man by the name of Pancho Villa Uh, Matt, who's Pancho Villa? Uh, well, depending on who you ask, Pancho <laughs> Villa was either a, uh, a hero of the people of Mexico, or he was the greatest Mexican gangster who ever lived. Yeah. Uh, so Pancho Villa, it, uh, he, he has a, a claim to fame that only the British have. And that is Pancho Villa is the only person to successfully attack and destroy on American soil um, an American town. He's one of the only ones. So he came over with a bunch of bandits into Texas. No, sorry, New Mexico. New Mexico? Yes, New Mexico. Uh, and, and destroyed a bunch of uh, stuff. But anyways, uh, how this connects to the Dodge Brothers is that in 1916, uh, the Dodge Brothers were able to sell uh, about 150 to 250 trucks, military trucks, uh, to, uh, to Blackjack Pershing um, for, because he was in charge of basically attacking and taking out Pancho Villa. And so because Pancho Villa had horses, um, they were able to use these trucks to chase him down, uh, trucks and cars. Uh, and they, they were able to, to get him. Uh, you know, to, to chase them off, and uh, actually, with with their with their ability to uh, outpace them and, and, and outrun them, uh, even though that they had horses which were more maneuverable off road than, than these trucks, uh, they were actually able to get um, his uh, one of his uh, one of his uh, lieutenants, one of his top lieutenants. They were able to attack and uh, and and kill him, um, and so one of the people that uh, was really liking uh, this particular uh, vehicle and so forth uh, is he was a lieutenant at the time. Uh, you may recognize the name George S. Patton. Does that name sound familiar? He, he, he may have had a movie done about him at some point. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Something about goose and bowel syndromes. I don't know. Anyways. Um, now, one of the cool things about the Dodges at this time is Ford was using um, kind of a, a, an old style planetary gear set uh, in their transmissions. Uh, I'm not going to get into too much, um, you know, to, too, too too much about it or anything like that but basically it was it was a very it was a very rudimentary kind of uh way of making you know uh transmissions and gear stuff and everything like that 
Um, the uh, the Dodge brothers, uh, mostly through Horace's influence, were able to uh, create uh, uh, what's known as hold on, how do they uh, sliding gear sets, uh, sliding gear transmissions, which essentially anything that doesn't have a, a CVT uses a sliding gear transmission where the gear sets change and slide around within the set within it. Um, the other thing that they did was is all of their vehicles uh, were 12 volt, uh, 12 volt electrical systems as opposed to six volt. And the vast majority of automobiles um, were, were six volt all the way up into you know, the, the early to mid sixties, uh, the Volkswagen Beetle wouldn't, uh, get a 12 volt system until 1968. So That's incredible. So basically, so the Beetle got a 12 volt system roughly 50 years after it was introduced to automobiles in general. Yeah. Well, it, it, the, the idea of 12 volt, um, was, was around for a while but it was it was just so much easier and cheaper to make them six volt um right but obviously i mean jay leno goes into this in one of his videos and i won't overbear on what he said but the gist of it is the 12 volt is is a much better system overall and that that's the gist of it and i mean it's you look at it it's okay a hundred that means for a hundred years now in cars we've had a 12 volt system it's one of the few things in cars that hasn't really changed you know, in, in cars. Now we're just now starting to see the advent of 48 volt systems, and I won't get into it, but there's some really incredible things you can do with 48 volt that you could never conceive of doing with a 12 volt. But um, yeah, I I really think that that we the faster I, I think that's the real kind of hang up with most automotive with, with most automobiles today is we just need to make the conversion over to 48 volt systems. Yeah, um, and we'll get into that later podcast in, in detail for sure. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it, it, it just but, makes everything just run better. Um, yeah, and, but anyways. In so many ways. So 1960, real quick. So this is in the smack in the middle of World War One in Europe. Dodge is making uh, all these trucks and uh, Pershing's using and them a, to track down. And America, mind you, America has not declared war. Right, not in 16. They uh, 17, I think, they finally got into it. Yeah, in 17. And but the Lusitania has been sunk, so right, right. It was it was imminent. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, so so they build all of these vehicles, and as soon as America says we're jumping into World War Two, or one. World sorry World War One, <laughs> sorry not there yet. <laughs> um, as soon as they say we're we're jumping into World War One, um. Dodge's brothers are right there. And they make a killing, an absolute killing. Um, and they're able to they're able to kind of hold on to this wonderfulness for just a short period of time. Uh, because in in January of 1918, or sorry, 1920, um, 
John, uh, the oldest brother, um, dies of pneumonia caused by the the Spanish flu of 1918. So it's called the it's called the, the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, one because everybody blamed the Spanish for it, which it really wasn't. And then 1918, which is when the first real real uh, uh, real cases kind of hit. Now I was reading about this, and it and it was and it was amazing to me because in 1920, both John and Horace are healthy middle-aged men. I mean, they're in their 30s. And, you know, they, they're, they're both extremely healthy. And this actually, you know, so, so why, did the, why did the flu hit them and, 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 and take out John um, so effectively? And I was reading about it and one of the real nasty things, and I've never heard of this, and, and, and Matt, jump in if you've actually heard of this. The reason why, they, they, they speculate that the reason why the Spanish flu was so deadly is because it caused a hyperreaction of the immune system. And, and as we all know, pneumonia is basically just your lungs filling with fluid right, until um, you caused by your body trying to attack whatever virus it is. And so because it caught or cut, because it caused a hyper reactivity of the immune system, older people, sickly people with bad immune systems and young children with non with immune systems that hadn't really developed yet, actually had a much, much lower uh, death rate compared to people from their late teens to their early 40s in perfect, beautiful health with really strong immune systems. That's really fascinating. Oh, my gosh. That is just... The, the other thing, too... It's just sad. Have, the thing that you've got to sort of have perspective on is, you know, a, a 30-year-old in 19... 19- 15 say is is kind of like a 50 year old today you know in terms of overall health and stuff i mean people didn't really live all that long back then there was you know sanitation was not that widespread you didn't you didn't have you know hospitals weren't necessarily you know sterilizing everything before it was being used as far as i'm aware it yeah. came pretty quickly world war one <laughs> sort of brought along the advent of a lot of good medical practices yeah um but uh but you know there were there were a lot of mitigating factors too. But that's just that's just tragic. I mean the irony is <laughs> incredible. Yeah, and, um, and, and 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 I'm and I am actually still we we are and 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 th- there is a point to to why I'm talking about how how devastating the the impact of the Spanish flu was was because of the fact that it, because it hit healthy people so hard and so completely i mean it wiped out between 50 to 100 million people worldwide within just a few years like two or three years 
And, and this will have a dramatic effect on the Dodge Brothers motor car company because they didn't really plan for any kind of handoff to, you know, if something were to happen to them. Because John dies in January. Horace, who is not the, he's not the salesman, he's not the manager type, and all of this responsibility is of this of this car company, which is, you know, they just got this huge boost of capital and momentum from their World War One production of automobiles. And now all of a sudden, Horace is in charge of this. Plus, he's lost his best friend. And he drinks a little bit much. He's not taking care of himself. And he ends up dying of cirrhosis in December of 1920. So in 1920, John dies in January. Horace dies in December. And now the company is left to their widows. And these poor women, they try and they struggle you know, through the early teens. Um, eventually, uh, they get uh, hooked up with an investment group, uh, Dylan Reed and Company, um, uh, where they, they sell it for $146 million, which at the time was the largest uh, cash transaction in history, you know, and then not too far after that, um, you know, they were then uh, I mean, basically by 1928, um, a brand new company called the Chrysler Company basically bought them out. So from 1920, to 1928, um, Dodge went through some really hard times. That's that's amazing. So basically, at this point, it's been 90 years that Chrysler and Dodge have been under the same umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, and 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 as opposed to, um, like what William C. Durant did with General Motors buying up a lot of these little small car companies and stuff like that. This wasn't a little small car company. You know, you, you had Chrysler, which was, you know, kind of a, you know, they were the, and, 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 and they still kind of are considered, you know, the more upscale, you know, the, a, a kind of not high line, but what I like to refer to as high-ish line, you know, uh, what, what, what Buick sort of is now is a high-ish line, that kind of thing. Premium. Uh, premium cars. Yeah. And so Chrysler had already purchased uh, DeSoto, uh, which I don't think we're going to get into, but, you know, DeSoto no. was another ma manufacturer and stuff like that. And they had also um, purchased Plymouth at the time also. So, Chry so Dodge is kind of like this last acquisition uh, kind of a thing. And so 
they they use kind of uh, dodge, but one of the things that they still had was is they had Dodge's reputation uh, for their trucks. And that would help out um, with World War II. Because in 1942, when we went to war, when we declared war, from 1943 to 1945, automobile production came to a screeching halt in the United States to build war stuff. But Dodge had the advantage because basically they just kept making the trucks that they would have already have been making and they made a lot of them they 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 built over 400,000 trucks in varying different ways um they also expanded out to uh help uh China and Russia build trucks and stuff like that based on the exact same platform and everything. So, but so coming out of the, the, uh, the, the years in, in that Dodge had a firm hold on the truck market. Um, and then they would make a decision that would really kind of, change their fate and that is they wanted to switch and get back into heavy duty car production and they relinquished their focus on trucks and it happened at exactly the same moment that Ford came out with the F-Series pickup truck So, so, so when about was it? So the well transition maybe the, might not be the appropriate word here, but when when did they really sort of refocus on on passenger vehicles? Um, the early fifties. Okay. okay. Um. So, so. And then I mean, if, to skip forward a bit because things get a little a bland for there for a bit. Um, it it's really. They were really well positioned for, uh, for the advent of the muscle car. Uh, oh yes, right. So, what's really interesting just for a second. What's really interesting is then how they get hooked up within with the Cummins Diesel Corporation, um, making trucks that were so. And we'll get back to this in a second. I'm sure chronologically. Yeah. Making trucks that are so in power, way beyond anything the F Series had to offer at the time. Yes. Well, power and, 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 um, and just heavy dutiness. Because the F-Series pickup truck, a fantastic pickup truck, uh, began with the F-100 and, and would continue on and stuff like that. Uh, but they really couldn't, I mean, even, even all the way up into the early 60s, Ford really couldn't match them for heavy duty. Um, the, the only, the only, uh, I don't even know if you can really call them competition per se, um, for, you know, in, in the, in the, in the late forties and into the early fifties, um, 
what was Rio and later became Diamond Rio, um, which of course was Ransom Eli Olds, R-E-O, uh, what he formed after being kicked out of Oldsmobile. Um, but that was really the only heavy-duty trucks that could decently compete with with Dodge at the time. Um, and it really couldn't – I mean, maybe they could compete with them on uh, an actual, like, physical level. But as far as sheer production, not even chance, not even close, not even close. But before we get into the muscle car era, I have to, I, 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 I think we have to bring up um, one of the most fanatic groups I, I've ever come across. Um, and and I don't think there's a more fanatical group in automobiles than is the Mopar group. These lovable lunatics have championed and used misinformation and um and so forth to just really kind of try to propel the myth that the Chrysler Plymouth Dodge Trinity, the Holy Trinity, was the best producer of muscle cars of the 60s. Now I know that I am putting my life at risk by saying such reckless things. <laughs> um, th th there is no doubt that they made more versions of the muscle car than I think any manufacturers. Um, but uh, but one of the things that kind of contradicts me um, is the the amount of uh, the amount of money and prestige that they claim now, especially at the auctions. So, well, okay. So, so let's, I mean, Matt, 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 do you, do, do you, do you want to jump in on this uh, particular I, bandwagon? I would, I would love to. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I do need some fact checking here because once again, I am without, without websites, so without a desktop computer to, to work with here. Um, but it's, a lot of it seems to come from the Hemi engine, right? Which is the hemispherical combustion chamber. And would, would you say that's, that's fairly accurate, Zach, that that's really where it all sort of starts, right? starts with the engine? No, um, <clears throat> it, it didn't start there, believe it or not. Um, they, they started to put 
sorry, um, what was called the Wedge V8. Um, so in the, in the early uh, Cornets um, and even the, uh, the, the, the Barracuda and stuff like that, they, they put these, they, they really started to increase the displacement of the engines that they put in these, what was considered compact and midsize sedans. Uh, we we would call them today aircraft carriers, but that's just my own. <laughs> they were big cars. Well, I I say the Roadrunner comes closer to an aircraft carrier than anything else from that yeah. era. But God, two doors, twenty feet long, give or take. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, well, okay, yeah. The the Wedge V8 was decent, right? It was an upgrade from what was currently available, but it wasn't until the Hemi the Hemi came out that people really, really started to sit up and take notice. Um, and it was it was really the most distilled representation of the notion of win on Sunday, sell on Monday, when they started putting uh, these Hemi's in the NASCAR series. Yes. What? Yeah, so yeah, and, and NASCAR would have a huge influence on on Dodge and 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 Plymouth and stuff like that, um, and and it would it would take it to a whole different kind of craziness, um, and but but yeah, anyway, anyways, you, you were saying about you know NASCAR and and, and the engines and stuff. I, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, we had a weird technical glitch there for a second. Yeah. We'll go back. Um, but the uh, the Hemi V8 worked really well at the top of the rev range, which is where you're you are when you're racing, especially when mm-hmm. you're an oval. You're always yep. going to be at that top that top thousand RPM of what the engine is capable of. But it's kind of like if you had a like a Honda four cylinder VTEC engine, but you only had the VTEC camshaft. Yes. <laughs> yeah. At, at low speeds, not so yeah. much. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, so it was, it was, it was more one of those kind of deals. But of course, marketing didn't care about that, right? Because they're, you know, they're marketing to, you know, look at what this thing, amazing thing, can do, and and everybody sort of went for it, which is kind of great. But over time, what Dodge has done is they've kept the name, but they've gradually modified the shape of the combustion chamber so it's actually more efficient in a in a true sense of the word and less hemispherical. But um. Well, and, and, and to kind of drive and to kind of fun, just, just drive a final, you know, to just drive this home, um, the, the king himself, uh, Richard Petty, drove Dodge. Yes, he did. And, and he, was, he was a Mopar guy. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, he, he drove Mopar. I mean, it, it was, he was Mopar all the way. Uh, driving uh, chargers and then later on the uh, the superbirds mm-hmm. he was involved uh, in roadrunner road development actually yep yep and everyone thought he was cheating because it was a wedge shape with that big old wing on the back so you get all that clean air for this for the rear spoiler yep now here's here's a funny fact do you know why the wing was so large and as tall as it was well, what I was told was that it was done that way to get the cleanest possible air because it was too turbulent coming off the back of the um, the roof. And that is, I I believe that is a very 
engineered way to kind of look at it. Oh, oh, hey, we're getting this benefit. The real reason was so that the trunk could flip up without the wing hitting the roof. <laughs> it uh, was practical. Yeah, yeah. As, yeah, as strange as it is to say, and if any of you out there haven't actually... If you've never seen one in person, first off, try to find one in person. Um, they're 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 super rare. There's only a few of them made for, uh, you know, the actual uh, general public use. But at, at the very least, find a picture of this thing because it is, it is still to this day, the the largest wing ever attached to a production vehicle. I mean, the thing is absolutely just gigantic. And it was all aircraft aluminum, super strong. You, you can actually sit uh, a regular size person on the wing itself and it won't damage it. Oh, wow. It's just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. That's really cool. But, um, but uh, yeah, so, so I, I also, it's my understanding that uh, Hemi was one of the, the big ideas where it was where the the, the added started. There's no replacement for displacement, and yeah. which kind of came to a pinnacle with the the elephant um, motor, which is like over 500 cubic inches, if I remember correctly. Uh, I'm not familiar with that one. I know, um, you know, everybody always wants you know the big 440, um, you know, which. Uh, in my own personal opinion, I think the uh, the 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 360 um, is probably uh, the most efficient uh, power to weight ratio as far as the as the engines. Um, but yeah, everybody likes the big old 440. Um, but uh, that was that that was a good time. Um, the other thing uh, is. You also have uh, within the same kind of time frame. Uh, I, I think we would be remiss uh, if we did not um, talk about uh, the Plymouth Fury, because uh, because I, I think we can kind of throw Plymouth and Chrysler all in this kind of same conversation, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I totally forgot about the Fury. Yeah. So the Fury um, has two different. Uh, there, there, there's two things cultural that that we get from the, the from the Plymouth Fury. Uh, one of them is uh, the earliest uh, the earliest police cars um, that were purposely built with uh, with civil service in mind um, was the. Uh, Kind of the satellite, but mostly the the, the Furies, uh, the Fury One, and then the Three, and then blah blah. Um, but the other one is. Do you, do you know the other uh, the other cultural connection with the Plymouth Fury there, Mister Matt? I I don't. Well, I'm gonna give you a hint. It's a story that takes place in Maine. Well, that means it involves um, uh, Stephen King. Yeah. Beyond that, I'm not really... Because, 
I got nothing. Oh, you mean you mean Carrie? Carrie? No, 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 not not Carrie. Sorry, uh, Christine. Christine. Okay. Yeah, Carrie's the telepathic. Uh, right. The fire basically, starter. sets fire to everything and kills everybody at the prom. Uh, Christine uh, is the possessed car that was. I uh, believe. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna get the year wrong. And then they're really going to come for me, Matt. Um, holy monkey. Well, well, he's looking that up. Christine is definitely proof that Stephen King can write anything and make money from it. It's a good book. It's a very, I, I actually own the book. I, I uh, my, my 14 year old daughter read it and she was like, hey, not a bad book. So, well, Zach's finishing looking that up. I did look up the elephant motor while we were doing this, and the elephant motor started out as a 426 and either was either modified by Hot Riders or by the factory. It's not clear to me at this point to uh, to be a 440 cubic inch engine, which is just, I, I, I in terms of liters, it's just obscene. How, wait, how big was it? 426 to 440. It was 426 from the factory. The original elephant motor, going way, way back, was a 426. Yeah, yeah, and then it became the 440. Right. Okay. And the 426 was six point. Yeah. Ha! Something. I should have said it because I would have been right anyways. Uh, was a 1958 uh, Plymouth Fury, and it was was called Christine. So uh, all of these shows like uh, Dragnet and Car 54, where are you? Is that Plymouth Fury? That sort of... For the most style? part, yeah. Some of them satellites, but okay. yeah, mostly Plymouth Furies and okay. Cornets okay. also. Yeah. But but you're, you're kind of seeing this... Uh, I mean, even to this day, I mean, you have, you know, Dodge Chargers um, are, 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 the, are the sedan of choice for the police Mm -hmm. for the most part and then comes the dark days right we always come back to the dark days but uh, we do so okay okay we did okay we can't quite get to the dark days yet without actually talking about the challenger you can't forget the challenger you and the challenger what what can i say it's a badass looking car. I don't care yes. what year Challenger you're looking at. No matter what year Challenger you're looking at, it's still a badass looking car. Yes, brakes. You can pick brakes any, any uh, year you want. I, I believe the brakes were built by a company called Hope and Pray. Um, well, they, they were made out of wood, weren't they? Uh, I, I I don't know if they were that far advanced. Um, well, it was you know it was Enzo Ferrari who said, "Why do we need better brakes? We build our cars to go fast, not to stop." Oh, 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 this was definitely, yeah, 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 yeah. The early Mopar, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the, the Mopars of, of the muscle car era. See, it's, so growing up in the South, uh, sorry, South, Which, South we're, we're, we're both sorry. We're, I, we're both sorry for you about that. I'm not sorry to hear about that. I love growing up in the South. So growing up in the South, there was a little show called Dukes of Hazard, And Dukes of Hazard had the General Lee. And the General Lee was... A Dodge Challenger. Sorry, a Dodge Charger. No, it was, it was, yeah, Dodge Charger RT. And it was an awesome show. Now, the fact... Okay. okay. 
to a 10-year-old, <laughs> to a 10-year-old, it was a fascinating show. Yes, it did not hold up well over time, but at the time, oh. it was great. Plots may have been a little bit... Holes like Swiss cheese. <laughs> but every... The wonderful thing about... Okay. The best part about the Dukes of Hazard is that you could just tell that when the writers had kind of gotten to a stuck spot, Episode five. they would just write in their margins and we jump a car. <laughs> They destroyed more chargers. <laughs> yeah, that they they actually inflated the market for the car so badly that by the end of the run, they were using copies and mock-ups yep. with a charger body on another frame because they couldn't <laughs> find they couldn't any other decent chargers it. left to paint. Exactly. Yep. Anyways, but but it so there's this kind of mystique about and. And and, and, and and Mopar is not the only one to blame with this. Uh, General Motors did it. Ford did it. Um, and and we, as, as a society, just kind of bought into it. Some were still buying into it. That the muscle cars were these wonderful, fantastic, awesome vehicles. And they just weren't. They were four wheels and a steering wheel with this huge, gigantic, inefficient gasoline-guzzling engine that would just launch you in a straight line. Mostly. And, and, and would just hurl you into the, you know, in, 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 in a forward direction. But the brakes were bad. The steering components were bad. The suspension was bad. Um, you know, and, and you have for, you know, power per liter of displacement, they were horrid. Absolutely yeah. horrid. Um, the goal was to get up to one horsepower per cubic inch, but that was before it was SAE net. That was, that was raw horsepower. Oh, Yeah. And and even you know when when General Motors finally was able to accomplish it, which I I, uh, I can't remember what they got. Uh, I think it was one of the Corvettes uh, was finally able to get 351 horsepower out of a 350. Um, like Matt says, it, it depends on who's counting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot like how the EPA cal- calculates miles per gallon now. <laughs> They're trying, but they're failing. Well, explain okay, um, explain to me why a 2017 Honda, sorry, a 2018 Honda Accord Hybrid got 47 miles per gallon average, and a 2019 Honda Accord Hybrid gets 48 miles per gallon average, and Honda hasn't done a blasted thing to change anything. <laughs> the only thing that changed was yeah. testing. That's it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I could. Anyways. Um, um, so, well, it did, it did, the model did change, but it might have been some light reading or who knows what else happened. Um, so, right, so then you go into the dark days, right, and then, you know, emissions chokes everything, like it always does, yep. and, they, and they can't figure it out, and then eventually they figure it out, eventually they come back, right? Yep. But, but then you've got things like the Omni, 
which my grandfather owned one of. Well, I, I think you gotta before we get in some way. Well, well, before we get to the Omni, you you have you have the Dodge Dart. You have oh, God. the uh, Dodge Dart was it was okay. Um, you have the Cordoba, the Chrysler Cordoba. My family had one of those too. Yep, same here. Um, Corinthian. You know, but everything came in. They, you know, by by the end of the seventies, you know, the vast majority of automobile manufacturers are just absolutely hurting because they really honestly didn't think that the that the good times would end you know with the emission standards popping in with the um uh, with the uh, with with the oil crisis and so forth and so on, they just didn't. And, and Chrysler's not the only one that 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 did this. Ford did this. General Motors did this. And and they and they didn't they didn't leave themselves an, enough ability to to change with the times, to go with the flow. Um, and the, it's really when the Japanese were able to come in because the Japanese at the end of World War II, material-wise, they were seriously hurting. It's kind of the opposite thing that happened for America. America, we had this huge influx of cash. You had the baby boomers. You had all these families happening and so forth and so on. You know, our economy was just absolutely going gangbusters. We were able to just import, you know, literally millions and millions of gallons of, of, of fuel and stuff. And fuel was like 25 cents a gallon. And, and it was just absolutely crazy. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. And, and we didn't do it right. Um, but then in walks a man whose name we've already talked about. And that is the ever famous Lee Iacocca. <sighs> oh, Lee. Yep. He saved Ford with a Mustang and now it was time to save Chrysler. Chrysler and, Dodge. And he did uh, with a very unconventional thing uh, yep. he he came in um, and he went straight to the federal government and he said look i need you to give me a loan or else chrysler is going to go completely belly up so give me a loan and i will pay it back and he did he did um and we got the the best worst cars ever made. Well, what basically what he did was he did the only thing that American an American car company could do to actually 
compete, and I don't mean compete on a quality scale or a look scale or anything else, but it compete on a value scale with the Japanese. Yep. With the with the K platform. With the K. And my parents are one of those too. 1982 yep. Plymouth Reliant, beige on beige with a four-speed manual, four-cylinder, front-wheel drive. Yep. I, uh, a friend of mine had a, uh, a Dodge Aries. That was his first car. Um, another friend of mine had a Dodge Daytona. Uh, and that was his first car. We didn't really like him. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was the, the, I mean, the K platform. It was, they were all basically the same size, right? They were essentially rebadged, re, um, re-equipped uh, or re-trimmed versions of the same thing. Well, they, they, they were able to kind of, um, the, the platform was actually fairly universal or not, not, for, not universal, but it was fairly um, expandable. You could expand it, contract it, move it around, stuff like that. Yeah, so lengthen it and so forth. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, it, it, it worked. Um, you know, it wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't the worst. Um, but uh, it, it gave us, the, 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 the K card gave us two different things. Uh, the first thing that it gave us was, uh, and some of you may laud this as the greatest thing ever, uh, others are still in denial, um, but it gave us the uh, the Dodge Caravan uh, or the Chrysler Town and Country. It did because that was actually built on the K platform. Yes, um, and it was the first minivans, um, which are and and most people just need to accept the fact that the minivan is the best family vehicle mm-hmm. trying to shove your young family into a midsize three O SUV. You idiots. And anyway, people forget sorry. that the, the, the first minivans were actually five seaters. It wasn't until uh, the next generation where they offered one that's uh, seven. Yeah. Until the 90s. yeah. Uh, they, they, they were, uh, they were, I believe seven passengers. Um, because the center the, the the center seat was a two seater, and then the third row was a three seater. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way to access the third row was because of the gap in the second row. Um, and well, that's not, well, not a, yeah, exactly. Well, at that time. Um, but the but other thing that it gave us mm-hmm. is directly from the success of the K platform and the fact that they were able to. Uh, return, uh, give a return on investment uh, from the loan, uh, I believe they were actually able to pay it back sooner than expected, if I am correct. That's what I remember as well. Yep. Um, But they were able to use that success and they were able to, and let me get the year correct. So we'll actually looking that up real quick. Now. 1991, they gave us, in my opinion, 
the most American car ever made. Like every single bit of stereotype about America is represented by this car. And that, of course, is the absolute craziness that is the Dodge Viper. Bob Lutz was involved with that car heavily. He was. He was. Which is um, odd because he's known, he's known first and foremost as a GM guy. Well, later on, he was a GM guy. Right, but he's generally known. You know, if you ask, you know, who did Bob Lutz work for for most of his career, he would say GM. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that and that Viper had uh, no roof. Yep. It was a, it was, it was a Targa, a, a, technically a Targa. Yep. yep. Um, and uh, the, the windows were something really bizarre. I want to say like hand crank or like a manual slide up and down. You had to grab it with both hands. It was something really odd. I think it was, I think it was, um, no, I, I, I don't remember. Yeah, there's something odd about the windows because the way because it wouldn't fit flush with the target roof necessarily. So they they had some sort of weird hack to work around it to make the car still be semi affordable. Um, but I just want to finish up one quick thing with the with the caravan, which is that according to something I read, which may be wrong, but the caravan was the uh, first ever use of cup holders in a vehicle. Huh. I can see that started with the minivan and that was like the big so the big selling feature for minivans was cup holders and then the big selling feature became the pass sorry became the driver side sliding door and that was really that was that yeah yeah and then of course became dual power sliding doors and then the that's when the the roof exploded you know on the whole industry um, yeah but well anyway, weirdly enough and, and 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 i and i do have to kind of with the minivan so a lot of people think, well, why didn't they just put a, a sliding door on the driver's side? It seems so obvious. Well, it was obvious. They, they, they would love to have done that. But they didn't have they, – they, they didn't want to put the weight into the car, making the structure rigid enough to be able to support two big open holes in the middle of the, in the, middle of the structure. Um, so they so they they couldn't give it a sliding door on the driver's side because they needed the structure uh, to be able to 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 do it. And it wasn't until later on techniques and and stuff like that that they were able to make stronger structures within the same lightness uh, of, of a frame. And they also justified it by saying that well, you wouldn't have a door that covered the the fuel door where you couldn't, you know, some kid accidentally opens the door and all of a sudden smashes into the fuel pump, which is a valid concern, you know. But eventually they figured out a way to lock that out and then everything was fine. Yep, absolutely. Anyways, back to the Viper. Yes, yes, the Viper. Back to the Viper. The car I couldn't care less about. Well. It, it, it was such a celebration of excess. Oh, yeah. It's, okay. Yeah, it's still the biggest I mean, engine of any car in automotive history. Uh, by, displacement. <laughs> by displacement. Well, no, there, there, there were other production vehicles older, like like in the turn of the century, that were well, bigger display. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. Not, not mass marketed, but. 
I mean, you know, there was, there was one that had 27 liters. Okay, not, not a freaking Duesenberg, something like that. You know, like something. No. Anyways, you know yes. I mean. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you know, uh, up until then, you know, it was the, the so the, the biggest engine displacement wise um, up until then was the 512 out of the Eldorado. The, the Cadillac Eldorado, which was like 1971, something like that. Um, so tech, what's up? Isn't that about seven liters? No, 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 no. 512? Yeah. 512? No, that's that's over eight liters. That's almost eight and a half liters. Okay, so it's right there with the with the later uh, the, the later Viper engines. Yeah, well, 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 the Viper engine is eight liters, and I believe it's stayed eight liters for most of its time. The, uh, the, the final last few years were eight point four. I know it went through two or three different displacements over its okay. period. But anyway. Oh, the, 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 the fifth generations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense anyways, but, but yeah, I mean, but it, it was, it was eight liters, 488 cubic inches pumping out 400 horsepower, you know, and and then like 460 pound feet of torque. I mean, the thing was just insane. A two-seat sports car with no traction control, no ABS. Oh, it was insanity. It's absolute insanity. Had side pipes. Yeah. Did you burn yourself? So, time? Yep. So if you've been racing around and stuff like that, you you quickly learn to kind of do a little hop out of the car, so your ankle or you know your your legs didn't hit the hit the side pipes. Uh, they actually had some problems in the early ones. Uh, where the exhaust would get so hot that it would actually warp the uh, the fiberglass uh, <laughs> panels around the side pipes. Yeah, uh, it would actually make the paint bubble slightly. Uh, the it's it's one of it's possibly the most uncomfortable car I've ever sat in. Um, I've never driven one, but I have actually sat in one, and. Okay, I'm five foot six, and if I feel that a car is too small, <laughs> there's a problem. Um, you can kind of take that to the bank. Um, wow. The uh, the 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 footwell, the, the 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 tunnel that where your feet go to the pedals, it tapers towards the pedals, and there was no like place to put your foot after you got done shifting and stuff like that. And the pedals were so close together. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole thing was just, just absolutely bonkers. Was that um, yes. Okay. Yeah. It was like a 94. So things got yeah. better. Yeah. 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 Things got better. They eventually, um, I, I did sit in a, uh, in, in a Viper, in, in a later Viper, uh, actually, a, a, la- a last generation, a fifth, uh, I believe, a fifth generation Viper. Um, uh, where they, uh, they they did kind of expand it out a little bit more. The seats were more comfortable and everything, and they were able to kind of insulate uh, the exhaust. They are still they're still side out, you know, 
you know, side pipes cost, uh, but they were able to insulate it better and stuff like that to make it more. But that first generation was just, it was just crazy. Um, so, um, so that was essentially, that was Dodge. That was the best thing Dodge did in the nineties. Um, you know, the, well, okay. Let's, so um, high performance cars, let's, well, I should back up. I'm sorry. In terms of cars that promoted performance, was the uh, the limited run of the Dodge Omni GLH, which stands for <laughs> goes like hell. Mm-hmm. Bit of an overmarketing there, don't you think? Um, supposedly well, you know, involved, but um, you know, come on, it's still a subcompact hatchback. It is. It is. Um, it's okay car, but not you know hugely crazy. Now, one of the things, and, and I do have to say this about uh, Chrysler in general during the 90s. They did do something that um, most manufacturers weren't doing. So uh, a traditional sedan is what's called a three-box design. And that's you have the hood, box, the cabin, a box, and then the trunk, a box. Um, And the problem is, is that if you want... um, if, if you want less hood, you have to increase one of the other two boxes, decrease the overall size of it. Um, and Chrysler was the first to really start integrating uh, what is known as a cabin forward design. Um, and that did one that did two things. One, it strengthened the overall structure because now you can start incorporating triangles <clears throat> into in, uh, into the into the unibody structure, which makes it safer. Um, it also allows you to, without increasing the overall size uh, of the vehicle or decreasing, the, your engine base size or decreasing your trunk size, you're able to uh, move the cabin in a direction which allows you to have a big trunk, have a good size cabin space, and still allows you the, the under hood space for a decent size engine. Um, and so that cabin forward design was later imitated by a lot of other manufacturers, uh, even to this day. Now, the vehicles themselves weren't exactly great, but the idea was right there. Right. Yeah, they were moving in the right direction, even if the, you know, assembly, engineering, overall design, aesthetics. Yeah. So. Weren't. Yeah. So, so you go into the nineties and then in, in, into the two thousands and stuff. And it's in the two thousands that I'm going to let Matt take over <laughs> so, because Matt's got something he wants to get off his chest. So, well, the two th- here's the thing about the two thousands, right? Is as far as I can tell now, please, again, it's, it's, it's getting late. My brain isn't working speed here, Zach. So bear with me. But because in the early 2000s, essentially, I can't think of 
anything memorable that that Dodge did that was really worth much outside of making a decent uh, truck. Now, here's the one thing, speaking of trucks, the one thing that Dodge did around this time period that revolutionized the pickup truck industry was they were the first ones ever, and this design is still used today by every truck manufacturer, the first ones to use a grill that was derived from semi-trucks. Oh my gosh, the early Rams of the 90s. Uh Uh-huh. Changed everything. Yeah, it did. I remember the first time I saw one of those things. Makes your job. I was in... Yeah, so I was in my 1986 Mazda B2000 pickup truck. The first stick shift I ever had. Compact, you know, compact pickup truck. And I'm on the, I'm on uh, Interstate Four in Central Florida, and I'm driving home up to Deltona, where my parents still live to this day. And I see this semi behind me, and it looks like he is right on my tail. And I move out of the way, and it's. Uh, it's one of the brand new Dodge Ram pickup trucks. And I had never seen a truck with that shape before other than like a Peterbilt or, you know, Mack truck or something like that. I mean, it was just, it was intimidating. It was definitely intimidating, especially my little itty bitty Mazda pickup truck. And, you know, and, and everything you see today is derived from that, you know, all the way up through, I mean, when, sorry, I can't help but laugh. When Dodge put the Viper engine in a in the Ram, oh, the SRT10. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, absolute insanity personified. That is the only car that I think you could successfully argue, or even make an argument, is more American, <clears throat> tip to tail, than the Viper itself. And that's and oh, that's. You do have a point there. Right. It's pushing it because without the Viper, the the truck wouldn't have existed. But but it's just I there used I used to walk by one frequently on my way to work uh, many years ago. And it's one of those things you just look at and you sort of say, Yeah. Yeah, the only way that you could make that thing more American is that every time you hit the horn, it did an eagle scream. something um but but uh the so okay so so dodge took you know this bold bold aggressive hyper masculine design and then they developed right the early um they reintroduced the charger as a four-door and then they took that vehicle and said hey this vehicle's doing pretty well we've got a v6 we've got a couple of v8s Let's make a mid-sized passenger car. We'll call it the Avenger, and it'll be a smaller version of the same thing since the Challenger is a full-size. And um, I know I'm skipping a bit past the Daimler thing, but yeah, we all know it was. It's, it's fairly common automotive knowledge that essentially all the passenger cars starting in '02, anyway, turn of the century, roughly, um, roughly. right, were taken from the Mercedes E-Class. It's this Mercedes E-Class chassis at the same time period. The trouble is... Which, Dodge, which is a fantastic chassis. It, well, okay. It was a fantastic chassis for the time. I would argue it's 
severely antiquated by now, but you know, I have it's showing a bit of its age. Um, but they're still using it today. 17 years later, it's the same chassis underneath the Charger, the Challenger, the Chrysler 300, the Jeep Grand Cherokee. It's all that same chassis still. I, I, I think we do have to bring up, though, the, the, the Chrysler 300C um, and, and it's, and I, and, and I know you and I are both not in this realm. Uh, th- th- this is not our world. Um, what old people? No, that unfortunately is our world as old people are <laughs> um, slowly becoming that. Uh, no, the, uh, the, the, the hip hop kind of gangster and and how popular it became well yeah it, it became essentially it was a um, it it was the sedan version of the escalade yes yeah and, and so it, graphic. yeah right and that's and that's fine if if yeah. you know there's different cars for different folks and if you like it great go for it you know it's 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 kind of a Mercedes it has a presence yeah yeah it definitely yeah. did you know and and you know and I've I've even some seen some folks who I hope I hope ironically um, put Bentley badges on the front of it because it does have it is a bit Bentley esque in the headlights and the way it looks and I'm okay mm-hmm. you know I mean I'm I'm so old at this point that my attitude on a daily basis defaults to you do you which is good because you haven't progressed to the point of get off my lawn right no no not to get off my lawn but i do a whole lot less of the thing where you hold the bridge and you just sigh so quietly to yourself a whole lot less of that and a whole lot more of eh, i think it's yeah. hideous but you do you um yeah but, in the uh, south we call that we in, in the south we have a term for that and it's called a mm-hmm just walk away you just kind of look at somebody else and you go mm-hmm and then they go mm-hmm and then you just both just walk away got it moving on anyways but, but continue uh, on to please, where please. i know you oh, want to go oh yes modern muscle cars mm. <laughs> nothing i enjoy more than a good v8 with two spark plugs per cylinder yeah there you go uh, so Two spark plugs per cylinder, but it's also two valves per cylinder, which is you know incredibly antiquated. But um, yeah, the uh, big valves. They are big valves. Well, you're you're looking at the 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 392, which is the 6.4 liter SRT V8 engine, is Mm -hmm. 0.8 liters per cylinder. That's enormous. Um, Your average car today is running somewhere around 0.5 liters per cylinder. Uh, the uh, the larger ones are like 0. 0.6, um, so you're you're in that sort of realm, roughly. You know, some of them are 0. 0.4, but you're 0. 0.4 to 0. 0.6 roughly. So 0. 0.8 is absolutely that's a big, big cylinder. You're talking about taking not a regular water bottle, but taking like one of those oversized water bottles, and that's per cylinder. Um, it's it's pretty incredible how how big those things are, and then to make the Hellcat engine. All they did was take the displacement down a bit, and I believe they put—I think it was a closed 
a closed engine case design, closed cylinder. I can't remember the exact term is, but closed, essentially a closed block design um, for durability. Thicken the cylinder walls, put that incredible supercharger on it, and said, you know what? Let's just put the horsepower through the roof and let's go for it. Um, but uh, I just that would be the the Apache engine, right? <laughs> is that is that what they that the code name for it is? Yeah. I, I can't remember, but but the one the, the the one that I love is is the one that's actually it's a crate engine, which means it's not actually provided in any Dodge vehicle, but you can just buy one and put it and it includes the wired harness, put anything you want. It's called the Elephant, and it's a thousand crank horsepower right out of the box. Jeez, it's just a retuned Hellcat engine. Ready to go for you. It's got more power than the red eye, and the red eye is seven ninety seven. The red eye is nothing more than a um, than a demon engine that doesn't require race gas. Yep. So it's or run best in race gas. But it's it's there's there's something to be said for being one of the last companies that an honest rear wheel drive handles sort of brakes mostly car that makes a great noise the interior is functional well I've, I've i've talked to several people i've talked to several people and and i've 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 watched a lot of videos and stuff like that um especially uh on on you know motor trend tv and stuff and the the dodge hellcat in whatever form, I mean, it, it, I mean, they, they've even, you know, it, it's it's even in a, uh, you know, in in the, in the Jeep Grand Cherokee that, that's called a Trackhawk, right? Which really should be called Jeep Hellcat, but go ahead. Which, and and there's they, they've had rumors for this for a long while, but I think they finally just come out and said, yes, we're going to do this and make a Hellcat version of the Wrangler. And it's just, it's just awesome that, that they can do this, that, that they just kind of, you know, thumb their nose. Now, they, they are fairly clean-burning engines. Um, I, I think they do uh, kind of counteract that with the, uh, with the acrid smoke caused from the burning of the tires. <laughs> there's, that. Um, there's that but it's it, it's just it's just awesome when, when, you, when you see a Dodge Charger or a Dodge Challenger and you look and there's that little symbol on the side and you go hey wait a minute <laughs> I know that car mm-hmm. but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing and the th- real quick this don't see the Hellcat Chargers enough, but that's an amazing, an amazing vehicle. The fact that you can put four adults in that comfortably and it goes from zero to 60 how fast, and the fact that the transmissions are all automatic but they don't die after a year, it's just incredible. I mean, that, that ZF8 speed is amazing in that car. Yeah. You know, it's just... That's it's and, and and the journalists actually all say that because of the, the chassis and the way it's designed and the, the weight distribution, 
that the challenge, the, sorry, the charger actually handles better than the challenger does. It's better on the racetrack. It's better in daily use. Um, it's better balanced. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and just, you can do something and, and you can do something in a charger that you cannot do in a challenger. It's impossible to do in a challenger. Um, and, and, and that's called see out. <laughs> see outside the vehicle <laughs> itself. <laughs> There's something to be said for that. A vision? Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people are kind of, you know, they're they like it. Yeah. I mean, GM seems to have given up on that idea with the Camaro, but you know, most people like it. <laughs> um, but it's no, it's, it's it's a great it's a great system. What what that car needs is a se- severe diet, and I've talked about this this chassis before. Um, and when we talk, when we did the Maserati podcast, but when that mid-size to full-size rear-wheel drive chassis that they're working on in mostly in Italy it finally becomes available, they're talking about taking three, four, five hundred pounds out of that car just because of what the chassis will allow them to do. And maybe putting some of that yeah. back in with batteries. But even if they do, you're talking about possibly having something like a hybrid Hellcat. Are you kidding me? Well, and, well and, and, and that's kind of the, the crux of the problem. The, 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 the possible dark shadow that is, that's kind of floating over Chrysler as, as it is right now. And that is that they're kind of coming to the electrification race potentially too late you can you can argue that it's too late i would argue against it being too late i would argue that they're putting all their eggs in one basket and essentially they're going to shirk into a shotgun approach and essentially electrify nearly everything in the lineup um starting with with the ram 1500 which i think is an interesting choice of what to start with but well i mean i I mean they're already coming out with the the e-assist which Um, which I've, I haven't driven one myself yet. Uh, I, I do actually plan on having it uh, here in the, in the future, but having um, in, in the Wrangler, the e-assist is supposed to be the engine of choice. Yeah. Because uh, you go from a V6 to a four-cylinder, but the four-cylinder has the same characteristics as the V6 with, right. with this e-assist. Um, you know they're 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 throwing it into the the, the Rams and into the pickup trucks and stuff, um, and so I, I just I hope they long I, I hope that doesn't affect the, the the nuttiness that that they're getting with the Hellcats. Right, right. That 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 bonkers, hilarious, you know, stupid fun. Uh, yeah, that car at the Smoking Tire took a, um, a Trackhawk uh, to Road Atlanta, which is a famous racetrack, and it has apparently this one um, series of this one chicane where he said, you know, everyone slows down for that chicane, right? Because you've got to be able to make it through, and if you don't, you'll end up, you know, so far into the um, I can't think of what it's called, but anyway, is, the the, the, the bumper. Is, is 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 this where he just went instead straight. of doing the chicanes, he just went straight? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Straight, he just put his foot to the floor and went straight through. 
And at one point, he had at most of the chicanes, he had two wheels off the grass in either one side or the other. And he said it was hilarious fun. The car didn't give a damn. Only problem was the thing weighed over 5,000 pounds. He could only do one lap, one hot lap before he had to cool the brakes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the, the brake pedal went all the way to the floor by the second lap. Um, and, you know, yeah. they're using six piston Brembo's up front and 13 inch rotors and all this stuff. And it's just completely overwhelmed by the size of that car. Yeah. Well, I, and, and I think that they need to, um, they probably need to switch uh, to, a, to, to a more exotic material for the, for, uh, for, for the rotors and the pads. Oh, the carbon uh, strap. Probably some yeah. some some type of you know some some type of exotic and that type of thing. I mean, the problem is, is that you know that's going to make the price of the car go up, and so right. you know for the vast majority of people, they're not going to do something that absolute crazy with it. But anyways, but yeah, but I mean, I I think that's ultimately the future of of Chrysler is is this kind of how do you balance the, uh, the 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 spiritual nuttiness with being able to advance themselves into the future without being left behind. Absolutely, like we talked about before, they are the largest consumer of of you know uh, what are they called the green credits? Yeah, the carbon credits. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, in the automotive world right now, um, FCA is, and that's got to change real quick. Otherwise, they they don't have a financially viable future. No. So. We're excited to see what happens next because um, things seem to be going in a pretty good, good, uh, good clip for them. And I'm, I'm excited to see what happens next. Yeah, absolutely. I think that'll be it. All right. Well, Matt, I, uh, I think, uh, I think closing out with a vroom vroom uh, is more appropriate now than it than it ever has been. Go right ahead. Go for it. Absolutely. Vroom vroom, Matt. All right. Take care, guys. Good night.